0: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to improve your relationships, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense out of reports in the media about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and also along the way trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues in order to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And I thank you again for listening to this podcast, which was pre-recorded for initial airing on July the 6th, 2016. Hope you had an enjoyable July 4th long weekend. We're going to start off Tonight's podcast with a mental health angle of using a smartphone to send text messages. This behavior has become universal, especially among young people. But, uh, there's an unexpected brain rhythm that's been detected when people are using their smartphone to send text messages. Not an inconsequential issue, uh, especially, especially in light of other research that has just found that we're spending almost 10 hours a day in front of some type of screen, whether that's computer, tablet, smartphone, PC, game console, and that includes work or home, rather a staggering amount of our time when you think about it. Um, So it makes sense to start looking at what are the consequences of all that screen time. Up till now, the only thing we can say with any certainty is that whatever time you spend in front of screens late in the evening is known to disrupt your sleep. Uh, Research showed that several years ago. But when I saw this article, that there's actually... A new or at least different type of brain activity when you're texting. That certainly caught my eye. So let's take a look at exactly what was found. Turns out that sending text messages on a smartphone can change the rhythm of brain waves according to a new study published in the journal Epilepsy and Behavior. People communicate increasingly via text messaging, though little is known on the neurological effects of smartphone use. To find out more about how our brains work during textual communication using smartphones, a team led by a Mayo Clinic researcher analyzed data from 129 patients. Their brain waves were monitored over a period of 16 months through electroencephalograms or EEGs, combined with video footage. <clears throat> That's rather a long period of time. It's 16 months, you know, well over a year. Uh, that, to me, indicates that you're going to get good, reliable data looking at these subjects over that longer period of time. <clears throat> The EEG, for those of you who are not familiar with it, uh, this is a test where you put sensors on the scalp to detect electrical activity. It's a measure of brain waves. Uh, it can help to diagnose a lot of brain disorders, most notably epilepsy. But you can detect certain brain wave patterns. We all have specific brain wave patterns when we're awake and uh, very distinct different ones when we're asleep. Now, they found a unique texting rhythm in the brain in approximately one out of five patients who were using their smartphone to text message while having their brain waves monitored. The researchers asked patients to perform activities such as message texting finger tapping, and audio cellular telephone use, in addition to tests of attention and cognitive function. Only the text messaging produced the newly observed brain rhythm, which was different than any previously described brain rhythm. The uniqueness of this texting rhythm compared to other forms of mental stimulation Could be caused by the combination of mental activity with motor and auditory verbal neurological activity. What they mean by that is you're combining different types of brain activity. Uh, you're using verbal activity to think of the words you're trying to type and then of course you have to use the motor, uh, skills to Type the right letters in the right sequence to get the words out that you want to. Now, they found no correlation between the presence of this texting rhythm and any form of demographic information about the subjects, including age, gender, what type of epilepsy they had, if at all, the presence of a brain lesion on their MRI, or what their EEG looked like if they were having a seizure. Now, researchers believe this new brain rhythm is an objective metric of the brain's ability to process nonverbal information during use of electronic devices and that it is heavily connected to a widely distributed network augmented by attention or emotion. Next to smartphones, the texting rhythm was also found in iPad users. The researchers hypothesized that the presence of a different brain wave rhythm while using mobile handheld devices might be caused by their smaller screens, which require more concentration. Well, so what does all this mean? This finding could have significant implications for brain-computer interfacing, gaming, and perhaps most importantly, driving. That's right. One of the researchers was quoted as saying, on the basis of this finding, there is now a biological reason why people shouldn't text and drive. Texting can change brain waves. Well, of course, <clears throat> there are many good reasons why people shouldn't text and drive. It's going to distract you from driving. Uh, this behavior has been well known to kill people and continues to do so. But now we have an even better reason than the reason we already have. It changes your brain waves and therefore may interfere with driving in that sense. While there is a lot more research into this issue needed, researchers feel they've begun to unravel the responses generated by the brain when it interfaces with computerized devices. And that really, perhaps, is the most important take-home point from the study. It's the beginning of realizing that somehow interacting with these uh, computerized mobile devices <clears throat> elicits different brainwave patterns and that definitely does have implications for you know how we do a lot of different things computing uh, and and otherwise so there you have it now you know when you're heavily engaged in text messaging with your smartphone You may very well be in a different brain rhythm than you are at any other time. Admittedly, not necessarily a groundbreaking revelation, but nonetheless, an interesting fact about the brain. Next up on psychiatry today, people with bipolar disorder can often trace this illness through their family tree. Uh, it's been well known for decades, in fact, that of all the mental illnesses, bipolar disorder is most obviously got genetic connections. And people have done uh, genograms where you look at an illness and track it through a family tree for many years. Uh, the National Institutes of Mental Health uh, has people come to Bethesda to participate in research research. And uh, to look at their genetic composition and that of their family members, those who are affected by with bipolar disorder versus those who are not, to glean genetic clues about the disorder. In fact, I once had a patient who participated in research like that. Uh, <clears throat> so again, we've known for a long time if we're going to find genetic causes for a mental illness, bipolar disorder is one of the closest ones. So now some gene hunters found some rare inherited gene mutations that they were able to directly link to bipolar disorder using so-called next-generation genome sequencing. Researchers at Johns Hopkins have identified 84 potential inherited gene mutations that may contribute to the most severe forms of bipolar disorder. About 5.6 million Americans are estimated to have bipolar disorder. The investigators say their study is one of the first of rare genetic variations in people with bipolar disorder which, in contrast to most previous studies of common gene variation, can provide a more direct insight into the biology underlying susceptibility to bipolar disorder. The report was published on June 1st in the journal, Journal of the American Medical Association, Psychiatry. We're going to take a commercial break right here. When we come back, we'll discuss the findings of this research and have other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
1: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
2: Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at obamacarewatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at obamacarewatch.org.
3: the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about genetic research into bipolar disorder. The research affirms the need for DNA from a vast patient population in order to definitively Confirm the role of rare gene mutations identified using the most advanced genome sequencing techniques. One thing that was learned is that it will take genetic data from at least several hundred thousand more people with bipolar disorder to confirm that these rare mutations do, in fact, directly cause the disease. Work is being done with the bipolar sequencing consortium to gather more data and collaborators so they can definitively figure out causes. Bipolar disorder is a mental illness characterized by periods of alternating episodes of severe depression and ecstatic mania with the anguished person trying for a happy medium in the swinging pendulum of high and low moods. Some early genetic studies looking into the cause of the disease used genome-wide association studies to search for common single-letter DNA changes that individually turned out to have very small effects, but in combination uh, can explain a small proportion of the risk for bipolar disorder. In other words, they're looking at the entire gamut of all of our genes. Uh, this is far, far worse than the proverbial needle in a haystack. So <clears throat> the team instead used newer gene sequencing technology that instead can read millions of pieces of DNA at the same time to find even more rare genetic mutations that, while more rare, may have a more severe effect. Initially, researchers looked at eight families with a history of bipolar disorder through several generations, likely indicating a significant inherited component. Ultimately, the investigators sequenced the whole genomes of 36 family members with the disease, Examining only the portion of the genome that acts as protein blueprints, they identified 84 rare gene variations that stood out in these family members. To further the case that these 84 variations were connected to bipolar disorder, they compared them to versions of the same genes found in in 3,541 people with bipolar disorder and 4,774 controls without the disease. Although many of these genetic variations were found to be overrepresented in the bipolar cases, the researchers caution that the data weren't powerful enough to show that any specific mutation among the 84 rare mutations directly causes bipolar disorder, noting that patient sample sizes likely in excess of 10,000 cases will be necessary to pinpoint rare mutations within a specific gene. The study did find evidence that genes from this study had previously been implicated in other psychiatric disorders such as autism and schizophrenia which provides additional support for the overlap of autism and schizophrenia risk genes with risk genes in families with bipolar disorder. One scientist can confirm that these rare mutations are associated with bipolar disorder in other samples. Their plan will be to integrate them with more subtle common mutations from the earlier genomic studies to better understand the cause of bipolar disorder. According to the World Health Organization, bipolar disorder overall affects more than 60 million people worldwide and about 2.6% of adults in the United States. Well, while research like this does take us a step further, we're still quite a ways away, frustratingly so, from being able to do genetic testing to help screen for and diagnose bipolar disorder, much less any mental illness. Uh, But nonetheless, hopefully this will take us a step further in that direction. Next up on psychiatry today more evidence that bacteria in our gut affect a lot more than just how our digestive tract works. Chronic fatigue syndrome sufferers, or those of you who know those sufferers, listen up to this. Uh, Physicians have been mystified by chronic fatigue syndrome, a condition where normal exertion leads to debilitating fatigue that isn't alleviated by rest. There are no known triggers and diagnosis requires lengthy tests administered by an expert. Now for the first time Cornell University researchers report they have identified biological markers of the disease in gut bacteria and inflammatory microbial agents in the blood. This would be a huge, huge development. Uh, Chronic fatigue syndrome in many cases is dismissed as just one form of those who suffer from depression and have debilitating fatigue, uh, yet sufferers complain of this debilitating fatigue despite not having any depressed mood. Um, While there is somewhat of a way to formally diagnose it, there are certainly no specific tests for it till now, and worst of all, absolutely no way to treat it. Now, in a study published on June 23rd in the journal Microbiome, the researchers described how they correctly diagnosed myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome, in 83% of patients through stool samples and blood work, offering a non-invasive diagnosis and a step forward toward understanding the cause of the disease. Well, 83% accuracy is excellent, and to be able to diagnose this illness through samples of blood and stool would absolutely be a revolutionary development in the course of being able to treat this disease. Researchers say their work demonstrates that the gut bacterial microbiome in chronic fatigue syndrome patients isn't normal, perhaps leading to gastrointestinal and inflammatory symptoms in victims of the disease. Their detection of a biological abnormality provides further evidence against the ridiculous concept that the researchers called it, that the disease is psychological in origin. right? That's another major upshot of this study uh, to negate those who would say chronic fatigue syndrome is psychological and not physical by showing evidence of biological abnormalities detectable in blood and stool. In the future, this technique could be a complement to other non-invasive diagnoses, but if there was a better idea of what's going on with these gut microbes in these patients, perhaps clinicians could consider recommending dietary changes Using prebiotics such as dietary fibers or probiotics with different species of bacteria to actually help treat chronic fatigue syndrome. Now in this study research researchers, sorry, researchers collaborated with a chronic fatigue syndrome specialist who recruited 48 people diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and 39 healthy controls to provide stool and blood samples. The researchers sequenced regions of microbial DNA from the stool samples to identify different types of bacteria. Overall, the diversity of types of bacteria was greatly reduced, and there were fewer bacterial species known to be anti-inflammatory in the chronic fatigue syndrome patients compared with healthy people. Interestingly, this is an observation that is also seen in people with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, diseases in which there is an intense amount of inflammation in the gut. At the same time, researchers discovered specific markers of inflammation in the blood, likely due to a leaky gut from intestinal problems that allow bacteria to enter the blood. Uh, What this refers to is that if the cells in the gut are damaged, most likely due to inflammation or perhaps due to some autoimmune process, then there would be abnormally leaky, uh, hence leaky gut syndrome, and this would allow bacteria to enter the blood as well as inflammatory proteins that uh, would do damage to the intestinal tissue, uh, perhaps alter the milieu of the intestinal bacteria. And the bacteria in the blood trigger the immune response, which could worsen symptoms. Now, the researchers as yet have no evidence to distinguish whether the altered gut microbiome is a cause or whether it is a consequence of the disease. In the future, the research team will look for evidence of viruses and fungi in the gut to see whether one of these or an association of these along with bacteria may be causing or contributing to the illness. Fascinating findings on a number of levels. Again, major take-home point. The chronic fatigue syndrome is a real disorder, not just quote-unquote in the sufferer's head and biologically based, perhaps even due to bacteria as opposed to psychologically based and also interestingly more disorders we may be able to someday treat with probiotics all right time for another commercial break we'll come back with more mental health related news you're listening to psychiatry today with dr scott
3: 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation passport transport the first and finest today That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport.
2: Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org.
4: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
3: You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for
2: listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health related news. Next up on tonight's podcast. When I saw this article, it said United States parents are not as happy as those without children. It's like, wow, that sounds pretty scary. Certainly uh, not what you would want or hope or expect. So I said, hmm, I'm going to have to find out what exactly led to that conclusion and bring it to you. Parents in the United States generally are not as happy as those who aren't parents. Not only that, but the United States has the largest happiness gap among parents compared to non-parents in 22 industrialized countries. According to a report by researchers at Baylor University, the University of Texas at Austin, and Wake Forest University. The report, prepared for the Council on Contemporary Families, housed at the University of Texas at Austin, poses the question, why? The answer, the relative lack of workplace packages of policies such as paid sick time, paid vacation, flexible work hours, and paid maternal or paternal leave. Well, right off the bat, I said, okay, all right, well, that's certainly much more reassuring than just the headline would lead you to believe." So it really is not so much about people being unhappy with having children. It's more about the fact that there are not enough workplace accommodations in place for those who are parents that would make their lives a lot easier. And let's face it, that isn't news. The United States without any standard paid leave available to mothers or parents or any standard vacation or sick leave to support raising a dependent child falls behind all the other countries researchers examined in terms of providing for parents' happiness and overall well-being. In countries in which such policies are mandated by the government or industry, a smaller gap exists between parents and non-parents in terms of their happiness. In fact, in those places, parents may even be slightly happier. The research was funded with the support of the National Science Foundation, and it is to have been published in the journal, the American Journal of Sociology, uh, this coming September. It examines comparative data from the United States, European countries, Australia, Russia, and New Zealand, which was gathered from the International Social Surveys and the European Social Surveys. While some critics say that good family support policies come at the expense of non-parents, they actually improved happiness of everyone in the country with an extra happiness bonus for parents of minor children. The same was true of subsidized child care, which might be assumed to only benefit parents. Another striking finding was that giving money to parents in child allowances or monthly payments had less effect on parental happiness than giving them the tools, such as flexible work time, to combine employment with parenting. Besides gathering policy information of the countries, researchers took into account each country's gross domestic product and fertility rate to ensure the findings did not simply reflect economic status. Researchers tested a number of hypotheses, among them whether more unexpected births and larger families might be associated with parents being less happy than child-free people, but those factors were relatively unimportant. The researchers also found that Americans are not generally an unhappy people. On a scale from 1 to 10, they hover in the 8 to 10 range, compared with, for example, France, where people tend to rate their levels from 5 to 7. So there you have it. <clears throat> the take-home message is that being a parent doesn't make one unhappy, but the lack of adequate Workplace accommodations for parents does tend to take away from parents' happiness. Next up on psychiatry today, a dose of nature is just what the doctor ordered. People who visit parks for 30 minutes or more each week are much less likely to have high blood pressure or poor mental health than those who don't according to new research by Australian and United Kingdom environmental scientists. This is actually not the first time that research has turned up findings like this. I remember discussing an article similar to this uh, from older research uh, several years ago. Um, <clears throat> this particular study was led by the University of Queensland and the ARC Center of Excellence for Environmental Decisions, it suggests that people might need a minimum dose of nature. Parks offered health benefits, including reduced risks of developing heart disease, stress, anxiety, and depression. If everyone visited their local parks for half an hour each week, Researchers said there would be 7% fewer cases of depression and 9% fewer cases of high blood pressure. Given that societal costs of depression alone in Australia are estimated at $12.6 Australian dollars per year, savings to public health budgets across all health outcomes could be immense. You would have to think the same, would hold true here in the US. Perhaps this research could transform the way people viewed urban parks. We've known for a long time that visiting parks is good for our health, but now this is beginning to establish exactly how much time we need to spend in parks to gain these benefits. Indeed, uh, so perhaps they've hit upon a minimum therapeutic dose, uh, certainly 30 minutes a week, doesn't seem like very much at all. And if that small amount can have this much of an impact, certainly would think spending more time would be even more helpful. <clears throat> there is specific evidence that regular visits of at least half an hour are needed to get these particular benefits. Children especially benefit from spending more time outdoors, we know this. Kids who grow up experiencing natural environments may benefit developmentally and have a heightened environmental awareness as adults than those who don't. This research is published in the journal Nature Scientific Reports. So there you have it. Get to your local park, and when it comes to looking at your local municipality and how they're allocating funds and budgeting, advocate for more green space. It's healthy for you, and it will reduce health care expenditures. So there you have it. Now, <clears throat> This next study on the surface might seem a little esoteric, and, uh, again, it's a study about uh, genes in rodents and depression. But let me preface my discussing this with you uh, by giving you my motivation for uh, bringing it up on this podcast. I often get the question from my patients who suffer from depression, is this something that my children will inherit? Is this genetic? And of course, these people just feel sick to death that they're having this disease means that their kids are at increased risk of it. And of course, you, you can't just sugarcoat the fact or, or give someone anything less than a straight answer, but that the truth is if you suffer from depression, then, unfortunately, your kids are at higher risk of getting it. Um, However, it's not as if the risk is a sure thing. Um, Studies show the risk may be somewhere around 20 to 30%, certainly not a huge risk, but that's higher compared to those who don't have parents who've had depression. Now, giving you that as background, this study, again, in rats, is showing that even if there are genes present that would impart increased risk of depression, that that doesn't mean the destiny of becoming depressed is inevitable. That these researchers found that an engaging environment can make genetically predisposed to depression rats happier. And again, we're talking about rodents, how much relevance can there be to the human brain. But I always say when it comes to talking about rodent studies with you, there are analogous structures to the human brain, um, pathways that are roughly constructed the same ways, and importantly, uh, the same chemical neurotransmitters in these similarly structured pathways. So there definitely can be information that can at least give us clues as to how our much, much more advanced and complex brains will work. Uh, With all that as introduction, let's get to the study. Genes apparently are not a destiny in determining whether a person will suffer from depression, reports a new Northwestern University study. Environment is a major factor. And nurture can override nature. Well, right there, they're talking about persons. Again, uh, the study was done in rats. So again, we have to see uh, whether this can be duplicated in humans, but that's very difficult because we can't narrow down depression in humans just to one gene. In any case, I think what we'll do is take a commercial break right here. And when we come back, we'll detail how the study was done, the findings, And we'll see what implications it has for humans who may suffer from depression. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. More after this break.
1: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
2: Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org.
0: Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors
2: talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctors' Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m.
3: When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host... Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, we're talking about a study that shows when it comes to the inheritability of depression, some scientists at Northwestern University think that nurture may be able to overcome nature. Let's uh, take a look at what they did. When rats genetically bred for depression, don't ask how they do that, folks, received the equivalent of rat psychotherapy, hmm, their depressed behavior was alleviated. And after the depressed rats had the therapy, some of their blood biomarkers for depression changed to non-depressed levels. The environment apparently can modify a genetic predisposition to depression. If someone has a strong history of depression in their family and is afraid their children will develop depression, this study is reassuring. It suggests that even with a high predisposition for depression, psychotherapy or behavioral activation therapy can alleviate it. The study also found genetic influences and environmental influences on depression likely work through different molecular pathways. Rats bred for depression and rats that were depressed due to their environment showed changes in the levels of entirely different blood markers for depression. Being able to differentiate between the two types of depression eventually could lead to more precise treatment with medication or psychotherapy. Now, the study was published several months back on March 29th in the journal Translational Psychiatry. The rats in the Northwestern study had been bred for depression-like behavior for 33 generations and showed extreme despair. You don't have people who are completely genetically predisposed to depression the way the rats were. So if you can modify depression in these rats, you most certainly should be able to do it in humans, according to one of the main authors of the study. The genetic rat model of depression is biologically similar to human depression, which was reported in previous research on blood biomarkers for depression. <clears throat> well, so how is it that you breed rats uh, for depression? Well, basically, they're looking at rats who show a tendency to give up or show a sense of despair when they're put in a situation where they have to work really hard to escape but just sort of give up. Uh, believe it or not, this constitutes a rat model for depression in humans uh, because when you give drugs that later go on to show benefits for depression in humans to rats who show this sort of giving up despair type behavior, instead of giving up and showing despair, the rats try harder to escape. Um, I know how silly that sounds, but believe it or not, this is how research is done. You know, don't look at me, folks. I'm not the one who makes this up. I'm just telling you what happens. Also, please, uh, as far as people for the uh, <clears throat> PETA, you know, that organization that advocates uh, for animals, again, don't call or write-in. You know, I'm not the one doing the research on the rats, just reporting this subject to you. Well, in any case, let's get back to what they found. So researchers wanted to see if they could alter the rats' genetically-caused depression by changing their environment. They took the depressed rats and put them in large cages with lots of toys to chew on and places for them to hide and climb. The rats were kept in the playground for one month. They called this rat psychotherapy because the enrichment of their environment allows them to engage with the environment and each other more. The results of a month in this playground, the rat's depressive behavior was dramatically reduced. After this playground psychotherapy, as it were, the rats were placed in a tank of water. Their behavior in the tank is a measure for depression. This is what I was talking about before. The control rats will swim around looking for a way to escape. Depressed rats will simply float, showing despair behavior. After the month in the playground, the genetically depressed rats energetically paddled around the tank, looking for an exit. They did not show despair. <clears throat> well, as silly and as unbelievable as all this sounds... This is why the researchers claim that they can overcome genetics when it comes to depression. Uh, they took rats that showed a genetic predisposition toward showing despair and depression. They put them in an enriched environment for a period of time. Lo and behold, they no longer showed the tendency toward depression and despair. Northwestern scientists also wanted to see If environmental stress could trigger depression in rats, bred to be the non-depressed control group of the experiment. These rats did not show despair behavior originally. The control rats underwent the psychologically stressful situation, which involved being restrained two hours a day for two weeks. Wow, the animal rights activists are really going to go after this. After the two weeks, the stressed control rats displayed depressed behavior when placed in the tank of water. Again, they simply floated, showing the despair behavior, did not try to escape. After the environmental stress, some of the blood biomarkers for depression changed from non-depressed levels to levels seen in genetically depressed rats. The next step is to find out if the biomarkers actually cause behavioral changes in response to the environment. If so, then perhaps they can find novel drugs to change the level of biomarkers in depressed rats to those of the non-depressed controls and thus discover new antidepressant medications. Well, regardless of what you think of the principles behind the study design, the basic take home message is an important one for people who are concerned about the possibility that their children may inherit their tendency toward depression, which is that with an enriched environment, they can prevent the possibility that their children will become depressed. However, that's assuming that the parents have the resources to provide such an environment, and also uh, presuming that you can always ensure that will be the case. Um, you know, we cannot raise our children in a bubble. They're always going to be exposed to the environment at some point, and you can never predict when that environment is going to impose some stress on those children. Um, <clears throat> while it's intriguing to think that you could reverse the effects of genetics. Um, more work needs to be done to see what exactly could be done in humans. Um, it's But it's a nice preliminary idea uh, because, you know, the researchers were able to take rats who were prone to give up and show despair in the swim test and uh, show them that uh, they could overcome that and try to escape that that uh, swim predicament so there you have it um if you are depressed you have children and or plan to have children and you wonder whether or if those kids will inherit your tendency toward depression um don't worry or obsess or beat yourself up about that possibility instead concentrate on providing an enriched environment Uh, with opportunities for learning and play and growth and development. Next on psychiatry today, cravings for high-calorie foods may be switched off in the brain by a new supplement. Eating a powdered food supplement reduces cravings for high-calorie foods like chocolate, cake, and pizza. Scientists ask volunteers to consume a milkshake that either contained inulin propionate ester or a type of fiber called inulin. Previously, studies showed bacteria in the gut release release this compound when they digest the fiber inulin, signaling the brain to reduce appetite. But the inulin propionate ester supplement releases much more in the intestines than inulin alone. After the milkshakes, study subjects had an MRI scan in which they were shown pictures of various lower high calorie foods like salad, fish, vegetables, or chocolate, cake, and pizza. And they found when the volunteers had the milkshake contain, containing the inulin appropriate ester, they had less activity in areas of the brain linked to reward, but only when looking at the high calorie foods. These areas called the caudate and the nucleus accumbens, which that's your Pleasure reward center of the brain have been linked to food cravings and motivation to want food in the past, and the, uh, the milkshake also made the subjects find high calorie foods less appealing. Uh, the studies to be published in the July edition of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. They then gave the subjects a bowl of pasta with tomato sauce have as much as you like, was what they were told. And when they had this inulin drink, they ate 10% less. So it turns out that um, this is a consistent finding. Uh, as yet, st- scientists aren't sure what about this supplement reduces the tendency to eat too much. Um, and you couldn't get enough fiber from your diet to match the effect of this supplement. So uh, hopefully this will eventually be available commercially for people to be able to use, and uh, it sort of confirms the findings of research on the effects of gastric bypass for obesity, basically altering the way the gut works not only can change appetite, but how the brain responds when seeing high-calorie foods, and also it may relate to the gut microbiota and how uh, the brain signals respond to them as well. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope you had a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we meet. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.
3: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com,
1: the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.